let's do what we should be doing this time of year as the church. Let's, let's talk about politics. What? I mean, isn't everybody just excited about the political realm? Isn't everybody just excited about this upcoming election? I mean, come on, people. There's energy, right? There's spark and there's dancing and there's name calling and there's attack ads and there's he said, she said and fact checkers and man debates or whatever that was that they had. And I mean, let's, let's talk politics, y'all. Let's talk election. Let's talk presidents and governors and all that stuff. Anybody tired of the election? We talked about being tired when we were up here. Anybody just wish this was all over? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do, yeah. I think the, the, the most impressive political speech I've ever heard in my life. Now, let me give you a little glimpse into my heart here. My original intention from the time that I was in junior high through high school, I was going to go um, be a political science major. And I was going to go on to be a lawyer. And with the mindset in there that one day I'd run for public office. That was always my desire when I was in school. That was my goal. Um, I love the political process. I think it's fascinating. I think it's actually a little bit fun, truthfully. Um, Last election, 2016, it was a foregone conclusion. I thought I was going to wake up with somebody as my president. I thought I'm not even going to watch the the footage. I'm not going to watch the results come in. Of course, I was up till two in the morning and watched it all come in. I kind of like it. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, but I am tired of it too. I mean, this is wow. Um, and every election is the most important election that we've ever seen in our lifetimes, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's be smart. All right. And we're going to talk about this some today. The greatest political speech I've ever heard in my life went like this. If you vote for me, all of your wildest dreams will come true. that's, That's some political posturing there. The great Pedro of Napoleon Dynamite made that promise to his... Class, as he stood up running for class president, if you vote for me, all of your wildest dreams will come true. And that was followed up by quite the song and dance number by Napoleon himself. And it really, it really though, isn't that what all of this is? It's somebody standing up in front of a microphone, in front of a camera, telling you, if you vote for me, all your wildest dreams will come true. And then there's this song and dance number that they put us through. And you know what? I'm afraid we buy it every stinking time. Anybody's wildest dreams come true yet? No. Well, we're going to see today, first of all, that Jesus is not afraid of the political realm, but he puts it in the right perspective. And that's our goal today. We're going to talk politics today. The scripture brings us to politics today. And we should be glad. We should rejoice because the word of the Lord is fitting for the people of the Lord in the hour. In the moment. So 
So don't be discouraged that we're talking about politics today. And we're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about this presidential election. This gubernatorial, which is my favorite word in the world, gubernatorial. This gubernatorial race. We're going to talk about it all. And no, I'm not going to endorse a candidate. I do not care a bit to tell you privately who I'm going to vote for. I don't care. Who knows? People are like, well, that's a private thing. If you want it to be private, so be it. I don't give a rip if you know who I'm voting for or not. And we're going to talk about how we should come to these decisions scripturally. Okay? If you would, please stand. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. And this is one of those classic Jesus gotcha moments. And these are the very words of God. Then the Pharisees went and plotted, plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father, you are the author and sustainer of the universe. And we hang upon your words. We live and exist based on your promises. And I pray that those words and those promises would move us to worship you this morning and through the rest of our lives. Help us by the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Keep in mind, we are in the last week of Jesus' life. We're on, it's hump day in the last week of Jesus' life. It's Wednesday. Jesus has been in and out of Jerusalem every day since Sunday. Uh, And he's come back here after his triumphal entry, after the cries of Hosanna, after coming back in, cursing the fig tree, going into the temple, turning over tables, coming out, going back in, and standing now in that temple teaching And the Pharisees and the chief priests have come and they've accused him and asked him where he got his authority. He refused to answer that. He told three really stinging parables to them leading up to where we are today. And so Jesus is still in the temple. He's still speaking. He's still teaching. And we come to verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. I don't know why plotted has come out twice in my mouth. I don't know what's going on there. Plotted. How to entangle them in his words. So, so these guys, these Pharisees, they, they just can't stop. They're, they're caught in a vortex and a whirlwind and they can't get out of it. And they just can't stand Jesus. They can't stand what he's saying, what he's teaching, what he's doing. Like, period. Nothing about this man pleases them. It just, ooh, it gets under their skin. They're angry with him. They hate him to the point that they are trying to kill him. So they're watching all of this unfold in this Passover week. And again, they've looked to this 
they've looked all year to this Passover week because it's a high celebration. They're going to get to be on full display in front of all these crowds. And everybody's going to look up to them. And this guy is stealing all of their thunder. Everybody's got their eyes fixed on Jesus. And they're like, oh no, this is worst case scenario. They're listening to that lunatic from Nazareth. And they can't stand it. So they've been feeling some pressure to make something happen to lessen the influence that Jesus is exerting to this massive crowd as they plot to kill him. Jesus is the story of this holy week. And their minds can't handle the frustration that that is bringing them. So after hearing Jesus blister them in the previous three parables, and he did, it says that they went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Now get that. They know that Jesus is going to be teaching, preaching, speaking in this time to this swollen crowd of religious pilgrims in Jerusalem. And they know that they can't just rush him and arrest him because the crowds will riot if they do that since the crowds were enamored with Jesus. So they plotted how to entangle him in his words. Now we got a sneak peek of this tactic when he was back beyond the Jordan to the east of the Jordan Uh, And they asked him about marriage and divorce. Remember that? They wanted to try to trick him and make him say something about divorce so maybe Herod would be mad at him. The same Herod who had John the Baptist killed. So they've tried this before. Um, They were hoping he would denounce divorce and therefore bring the wrath of Herod down on himself. And the word entangle here actually has this in the definition as they try to entangle him in his words. Of the attempt to elicit from one some remark which can be turned into an accusation. Okay, so that's what they're trying to do to Jesus. They're trying to make him say something that they can turn into an accusation. Man, that sounds awfully political, doesn't it? If we can get this guy to say something, some sound bite that we can just play over and over and over in the people's ears, we can convince them that this guy's bad. Nazareth man is bad. And that's what they're trying to do. So they're working on a way to get him to say something that might get him in trouble, either with the governing authorities or maybe even with the crowds, who then would turn on Jesus if he says the right, wrong thing. They want to turn something he says into an accusation against him. But they've done this before, right? They've pretty much made a practice of it in the last couple of years plus, right? Watch this. They do something a little different this time. Look at verse 16. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Now now check out that first part there. The Pharisees who would be familiar with Jesus would also be familiar to Jesus. Okay, He got used to seeing them wherever he was. There they are. There they are. And there's no denying the relationship that the Pharisees and Jesus had. Jesus has spent the last couple of years shredding them, condemning them, denouncing them. And they have been plotting for a long time now how to kill him. So they send who? Not themselves. They send their disciples. These are the lower tier guys. Guys who are in training to be Pharisees. And maybe some of them are unfamiliar faces to Jesus. So they're not coming as the Pharisees. They're coming as some guys. Right? 
And they come with some other guys who were really unlikely guys. The Herodians. Now, who were they? Well, we've talked about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the Zealots, the Essenes. We've talked about a lot of that, especially when we go back to the uh, intertestamental period study that we did. But we didn't really talk about the Herodians much. Well, the Herodians are actually more of a political party. Okay? And these are Jews who had aligned themselves with the Herod family. Okay? I don't know if you remember or not, but Herod got his position basically by marrying a Jew. He was an Idumean. He married a Jew and pronounced himself to be a Jew so that he would have favor with the Jews. Well, most of the Jews saw through it and they're like, bah, Herod, foreigner, unclean, we don't like this guy. These guys here said, wait a second. This guy, Herod, is in power. He is a king over us that the Romans have appointed. So why don't we use him and the influence that we can leverage through him, since he's sympathetic to our cause, which he really wasn't, why don't we leverage his power to try to get good things for us as the nation of Israel? He's got clout. He's got pull in Rome. So let's use him as our prying bar of sorts. And this has worked for them for a long time. They get... They get benefits. They get uh, good things by leveraging Herod. And they, they, they line themselves up with Herod. Whatever Herod says is right. Whatever Herod says is good. Herod, he's our candidate. And so everything he says, they're there clapping. Yes, Herod, yes, you're the man, Herod. And, and Herod looks over and gives them a big thumbs up and gives them what they want as much as he can. And they get blessed by the Herods. Hoping, ultimately, that Herod would grant them freedom from Roman oppression and let them self-rule. That's the goal of the Herodians. To make themselves comfortable until they can leverage Herod to the point that he grants them their freedom. But now, think about this. That's an awfully peculiar group of people for the Pharisees to latch on to, right? Because the Pharisees, the separated ones, were a strictly religious group who normally would not even associate with these Herodians because the Herodians weren't pure or even remotely religious. They're political. So now the religious Jews are buddying up with the political powers of the day. Sound familiar? The Pharisees had set their hope on the God of Israel, purifying and liberating and exalting Israel. They don't need no stinking Herod to help them. And yet here are the disciples of the Pharisees coming to Jesus with the political Herodians. They are so tricky, these Pharisees, right? They're trying to disguise themselves. They're trying to sneak in on Jesus and ambush him, basically. Or at least they think. And watch how these incognito Pharisee disciples approach Jesus. They say, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. (laughs) Smooth operators, right? They're buttering Jesus up. They call him teacher, which in their estimation is a very high compliment. Of course, they miss him by a mile when they only see him as a teacher, but oh well. And then they say, we know that you are true and that you teach the way of God faithfully. Truthfully, sorry. Really? Do do you really? Again, this sounds good, but they don't think or feel this way for a second. 
If they believed that Jesus was true and taught the way of God truthfully, they would not be part of a system that was plotting at this very minute to kill him. They really are what Jesus had said all along that they are. They're hypocrites. They're actors. And then they add this to that schmooze. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Well, they might really believe that. They probably should because they've seen that he really is not swayed by appearances. They can see that he does not care about anyone's opinion. And that's the very thing that really drives them crazy. He does not care about their opinions or anyone else's, and he's definitely not swayed by appearances. No, he he actually sees right through false appearances and sees what is in the square center of every individual's heart. They have surely heard from their Pharisaic teachers that Jesus nailed them over and over, seeing what was in their hearts. So they come with their deceitful flattery and with their natural enemies, the Herodians... And knowing that the goal of the Pharisees was to entangle Jesus in his words, they ask him this, verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Which, I mean, you can just tell from that question, this is charged with a lot of emotion, a lot of politics, a lot of public opinion. And there's a lot here to unpack, okay? So their effort to entangle Jesus focuses on what? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, first of all, there are probably a lot of different opinions at that time in that temple where they stood about this question. Everybody had an opinion. Everybody had a court that they were in that they would look at the other people and say, you're wrong and talk down to them and call them names. But these Pharisees... And Herodians would have taken two different answers to this question individually as the Pharisees would have taken one and the Herodians would have taken one. And we'll see that more fully in a second. But first, let's see what they're talking about paying. Because the word taxes doesn't quite catch the full meaning of the word here. This is, this is really big in understanding this passage, okay? One word is very important. And the ESV doesn't quite get it right, truthfully. The word is better translated tribute. Okay? Let me tell you what that means. So the word is kensos. 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 Um, and there's, it's only used four times in the New Testament. And it's really where we, it's where we get our word census. Okay? K-E-N-S-O-S is how it would be transliterated from the Greek into the English. Okay? So, so get this. So they did this census year by year to evaluate your property to determine how much tax you should pay. Anybody know what that's all about? And I got a delinquent tax thing in the mail the other day. I'm like, whoops, I forgot about that. Um, but here's the deal. It's a tribute levied on individuals and to be paid yearly. Okay? So this tribute was not a tax that would be used for the common good to build roads or to sustain the government or anything like that. This tribute was not about social improvement, but it was just about making Rome richer. That's all it was about. This particular tribute literally was just Rome saying, give us cash so we can have your cash. 
Again, the word is tribute. Pay me because I'm Caesar. Period. It was a bullyish way to exert superiority over a conquered people. You get nothing out of this and I get richer. And again, the known Roman world at the time was huge. And if every non-citizen was paying a tax just to fill the coffers of Rome, they're making a lot of money year by year just by taking people's money in this tribute. And they, the people who paid it got nothing out of it. So this is not a blanket taxes question. Is it lawful to pay taxes? It's better rendered. Is it lawful to acknowledge that Caesar is great by filling his wallet with our money with this tribute to him specifically? And we'll get to that in a second too. So again, depending on if Jesus says yes or no, Jesus is going to make one group happy and one group mad between these Pharisees, disciples, and the Herodians. And it would be a point of contention amongst the throngs of subjugated Jews. How much do you think they enjoyed paying that tribute to Caesar? The answer is zero. Oh yes, here's Caesar, take my money. I just want to make you rich. No, they, they hated it. And also, so that you got the Jews looking on to hear what he's going to say. If Jesus speaks against Caesar, well, you know his goose is cooked then, right? You don't talk about Caesar. So they're trying to get him to say something that's going to make either the crowd mad or Rome mad. You don't talk about Caesar and you surely don't say things to make Caesar think that you're striking a match to a riot or rebellion. So yeah, they have Jesus in some pretty clearly divisive crosshairs here. So how will Jesus respond? Well, let's just say Jesus being Jesus answers them very clearly. And it's not what they were expecting. First, he has a question in response to their question, which is kind of what he does. Verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Not quite the answer they're looking for, I wouldn't think. (laughs) Speaking of not caring about anyone's opinions, we see the word but, which we've seen so many times here in Matthew at the beginning of this intro here. But, in contrast to what they are trying to do, in contrast to their self-inflated, best-laid plan to entangle him in his words, but Jesus, aware of their malice. Yes, Jesus is aware of their malice. That word malice means wickedness, depravity, evil purposes and desires. Jesus is aware of these jokers' depraved evil purposes. He knew it before they flattered him or asked him their tricky question. And so he asks them, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Which is just kind of like a bing, bam. How do you figure these people looked when Jesus said this? So they think they've got him. We got him. How's he going to answer this? Either way he answers, he's in trouble. Um, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? What did he say? Us? (laughs) Yeah, you. Yeah, you. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Jesus is pulling zero punches here. Just blunt force trauma. (laughs) Jesus sees these normal enemies, the Pharisees and the Herodians, combining forces. He sees them approaching him with their fake flattery and then listens to their entrapping question. And then he just unloads on them. Why? Why is this question? He wants them to reveal their motivation. He wants them to show their malice. Why put me to the test, 
You hypocrites. He calls them like he sees them. They are hypocrites. They are play actors. They are pretenders. They are filling a role. And so he calls them just that. They're fakes, phonies, who are for themselves while looking like they care about others. And knowing that they are not going to tip their hands, he turns the tables on them and puts them on the spot in a very peculiar way. Verse 19. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. So, after punching them in the proverbial gut, Jesus makes a strange request, it would seem. Show me the coin for the tax. This tribute that you're talking about, bring me the coin that you would use to pay this tribute. And they would have brought him this. And you can't see all the writing up here. But that's what they would have brought him. They flipped him a coin and he's got it in his hand. Show me the coin that would be used to pay this tribute to Caesar. And look, magically, these Pharisees and or Herodians produce that said coin. So they're carrying them around, which infers something, right? Wasn't hard for them to come up with this one that they're showing them, was it? Anyway, they brought him what's called a denarius. We, We had heard of this coin before in the parable Jesus told when the vineyard owner paid the same wage to those who had worked one hour and on down to those who had worked all day. They all got a denarius. It was common to pay a man a denarius for a day's work. So that's not a lot of money, but it's a significant amount. Again, these people live day to day, hand to hand, mouth to mouth. I mean, it was just kind of, they didn't live mouth to mouth. That's a hand to mouth. That's what I was trying to say. Something's coming out and you're going, no, no, that wasn't right. The brain's going, recall that last statement. Okay, so, so these people lived hand-to-mouth, day-to-day. And so while a denarius is not a lot of money, it is a significant amount of money. Okay? And this is what Caesar ordered them to pay in order for them to exist in his kingdom. Because Caesar's Caesar. And you've got to pay Caesar for being Caesar. And you've got to fill his wallet because you're just servants. Of Caesar. And so Jesus stands looking at this coin that they brought him. And now watch this. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And he holds up this coin. So Jesus stands there with this coin that they brought him at his request in response to their question about whether it was lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not. And he asked those who had approached them, Exhibit A. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Well, let's answer that question before they do. Okay? The coin that they would have handed him would have had a likeness of Caesar Tiberius on it. That's the man you see there. That's Caesar Tiberius. And there is an inscription on it because don't miss that. Jesus didn't just say whose picture is on this. He said whose likeness and inscription is on this coin. That inscription that you can't read, that I can't read, is translated thusly. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Ray Vanderlaan, an expert on the culture at this time, said that that means a worshipped son of a worshipped God. See, the Romans had begun worshiping Caesar as divine, which sounds a lot like the Egyptians back when the Hebrews were 
enslaved them. Pharaoh was Egypt. Pharaoh was the rising sun. Pharaoh was the evening sun. Pharaoh was everything. And the Romans had come to worship Caesar this way. So, Caesar was a god. One of many, but he was still a god. He was still divine. And this denarius would show Caesar as the worshipped son of God. Let that sink in for just a second. Now let's reframe that question from these hypocrites. Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? Jesus says, show me the coin you'd pay it with. Oh, you mean this coin with the picture of your leader calling himself the son of God? That coin? Is it okay to pay tribute to this Caesar in this way? All of a sudden, the conversation has gotten reframed. The actual, real Son of God has a way with these situations, doesn't he? So whose likeness and inscription is this here on this coin that you pay this tribute with? And they answer him in verse 21. They said, Caesar's. That's Caesar's likeness. That's Caesar's inscription. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We've always used this text as a reason to pay taxes. Well, we should render to Caesar. Right? How many times have you heard that from a pulpit or from a Bible study teacher? Nothing wrong with that, but that's not what it means. This is a good old-fashioned humdinger here. So Jesus asks whose likeness and inscription is this. And I think that it's easy to miss the fact that he did mention the inscription part of that. But the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians answer both questions with one word. Caesar's. And right they are. It is Caesar's likeness. And it is Caesar's inscription. It was a picture of Caesar and it was an inscription calling that Caesar the divine son of God. Calling on him to be worshipped. Okay, so... Jesus replies to their correct answer to his question, which is Caesar's, whose likeness and inscription is on here. He replies to that correct answer like this. And he says, Therefore, since this is Caesar's likeness, and since this is Caesar's inscription, since technically this is Caesar's coin. Nobody could make coins but the government, right? Not valid coins. Since that's the case, therefore... Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So he divides Caesar and God very quickly. But what's that supposed to mean? Well, it means a lot. Now keep in mind you've got some religious hypocrites and some political maneuverers here in these Pharisees and Herodians. The Pharisees would have said that their religion should exempt them from the tribute... Because, hey, you know, our final authority is not the government, but it's God. So we're not going to pay tribute to some guy calling himself God. That's the Pharisee's stance. Whereas the Herodians would have said, hey, if it helps us get ahead, if it helps curry favor with Caesar, we'll pay him as denarius. It don't matter to us. So you had two different sides here, okay? Pharisees would have said, no, we shouldn't. And the Herodians would have said, yes, we should. 
And they would have had opposite views of how Caesar played into all of this. The Pharisees would never, never, God forbid, consider worshiping Caesar. (laughs) They would have said, the Lord our God is one and we worship him alone. The Herodians would have gone along to get along and would have given the tribute and burned incense or whatever the high leader asked of them if they thought it would help them promote themselves and their beloved country and their own welfare. So Jesus takes this coin and splits them asunder, each one from the other, and each from themselves. What should we do with this coin and this demand for tribute? Well, the coin says that Caesar is God and his son is the son of God to be worshipped and honored. Is that lawful? Well, Jesus is saying, it seems, that if Caesar's pictures on the coin give it to him, but... God demands that people worship Him and Him alone as the only true God, so give God what belongs to Him. Which answers their question like this. Give Caesar his coin, give Caesar his financial tribute, but you'd better believe that worship belongs to God alone. And that answer would have frustrated both groups of people putting them in a place where they didn't want to be. They're trying to trap him, and now he's trapped them. The Pharisees don't want to pay the tribute. Jesus says, pay it. The Herodians don't have a mind to worship God and would gladly worship Caesar if it means political advantage. Jesus says that worshiping Caesar gives to Caesar what is supposed to be for God, which is not okay. And each group would look at the other and say, yeah, what he said, but, but not all of it. Which is awful political, right? Anybody found the perfect candidate ever in your life? I like this, don't really like this so much. Man, I wish he wouldn't say that. I wish he wouldn't do that. But, oh man, look. Look at the good. So they're looking at Jesus like a political campaigner. And he's not playing with words. He's just splitting them asunder with his words. I like what he said, just not all of it. So their trap gets sprung, but it springs on them as they stand there. Jesus knew that they were trying to ensnare him before they started talking. And now he's trapped them with their own words, with their own coin, with their own intentions. And it doesn't say this. And I don't want to add to the scriptures. But I can just see him flipping their coin back to him. Whoever gave it to him. Shaking his head and walking off. You guys don't get it, do you? You religious people don't get it, do you? You political people don't get it, do you? And how do they respond? Verse 22. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. (laughs) It says, when they heard Jesus' answer, that they marveled. Now that word actually gives us some pretty important nuance here. These men, these two groups of divided men who had banded together to try to trap Jesus, when they get their words and their intentions turned back on him, it says that they marveled. Now let me read you that definition for the word marveled. It's thaumadzo. And it means to have in admiration, to wonder, to be wondered at, to be had in admiration. 
He just out-politicized the political people. He just out-religiousized the religious people. And they're like, dude, this guy's good. And they kind of stand there slack-jawed going, huh. I can just see them standing there, their minds ablaze and abuzz, trying to think of something to say, but they're just kind of going, um, um, with no words coming out, but with a wow spinning in their minds. Sometimes you just know when you're smoked. And it brings about a certain appreciation for the one who did the smoking. And that's where these guys are. They're stung, but they have an admiration for this guy who so thoroughly answered their question and evaded their trap. Now, they don't like him, but they've learned their lesson, it would seem. You're not going to see these disciples of the Pharisees or the Herodians trying to trick Jesus anymore. It says, and then they left him and went away. They had to go answer to their higher-ups about how their trap went. And I'm sure that when they tell them how Jesus answered their question, they'll see and know that they were completely unable to contend with the wisdom and greatness of this good teacher who was, in their falsely flattering words, true, and who taught the way of God truthfully, and who did not care about anybody's opinion, for he's not swayed by appearances. But on this Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life, This is just another bump in the road for the Pharisees' plan to have Jesus killed. And they will not stop until their final trap springs and they have their perceived victory when he's dead. Which just shows how lost they are. They don't get it. They don't know him for who he really is and it will drive them to murderous rage instead of the worship that is due to the one true Son of God. Now, Enough about them, let's talk about us. How about us? How does this affect, how does this account affect us? And how should we apply it? How should we respond to what we just read and went through? We're going to be looking at application through three G's. Anybody remember 3G internet? It was terrible. Three G's government, God, and give. All right, let's talk politics, y'all. Government. How should we view government as followers of Jesus? Well, several times over the past several weeks, part of our application has been submitting to the authorities, paying what's due to who when it's due. Right? We've, we've, I can think of twice probably in the last four or five weeks that those have literally been application points. Submit to the authorities. Do what the authorities tell you. Don't matter if you like the authorities or not. You do what they tell you because they're the authorities and they're put in place by God. And it'd be very easy to go that same route here and we're not going to because we've, we've, we've done that. But I think we see in the Pharisees and the Herodians the two extremes that it's easy to go to as Christians... With the government. The Herodians were all in for Herod fixing their problems. The Pharisees saw government as a polluted plan of man which fell short of the purity of keeping the religious law. Well, as you can probably ascertain, both extremes are extreme. And should therefore be avoided as the followers of Jesus. We don't look to Herod 
to fix all of our problems. We don't look to Herod to make us comfortable and put us at ease. And we don't deny the political process because it's not godly. Neither extreme is right. So then, how should we view and participate in government as Christians? Well, here we are two weeks away, two weeks and two days away from our presidential and gubernatorial election here in the good old U.S. of A. And we the people are supposed to exert our influence and vote to determine who's in those offices to best represent us. Now, does anybody in here feel like anybody in office is best representing them? I don't. I don't. The Herodians would be doing all they could do to get their candidate elected. Hailing him as the only one who can give any hope for the nation as a whole and for them individually. The Pharisees would hold their nose at the whole process. And say that they're not even participating in this worldly nonsense because the one true God is their only hope anyway. Please don't be either of these groups of people. Here's a newsflash that you probably don't need. But I'll give it to you anyway. Government cannot and will not save us. The mayor, the governor, the president, they're not going to save us. They're not going to make all of your wildest dreams come true. It's not going to happen. And I don't just mean that in a spiritual sense. If our hope is in the governments of man to do what is good and right and just and ensure that all is well in our world, well, you are in for quite a disappointment. But if you say there's no use to even vote or participate in the governmental process because it's all corrupt and there are no good candidates who reflect your high moral character, then you're missing your chance to exert whatever influence you have. And there is no chapter or verse that tells you to go out and vote or tells you to vote your conscience. And I would not dare to try to twist the scriptures to try to convince you that there are those verses. But I can urge you, beg you, individually, those of you who are of voting age, please educate yourself. And know what candidates and parties stand for. And use that knowledge to make your voice heard as to what you want to see happen in our country. Find and vote for those candidates and parties that show an appreciation of biblical concepts. Life. Family. Marriage. Justice. These are all biblical principles and concepts that we should be advocating for. As individuals, as the church, as a political voting block. So educate yourself. Please read the party platforms. I think that's huge. And vote for candidates who match up to their political platforms that match up with biblical principles. And don't listen to just what they say. They're liars. 
And so am I. Find the people who vocally, verbally, out front as much as they can say, I want to ensure these biblical principles are in place. And they may not call it biblical principles. But we know what those biblical principles are. Educate yourself on the candidates and the parties. Know their platforms. Know what they stand for. There are voting guides out there. And I'm not saying go by a strict voting guide that you should only vote for the people that West Virginians for life tell you you should vote for. But I'll tell you what's a good place to start. Oh, so you're a one-issue voter? What if I am? What if the only issue that matters to me is life? It's not, but what if it was? That's pretty important. America is saturated with the blood of unborn babies. God help us. Jesus told his disciples this when he sent them out back in Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And I say, yes, vote that way. Be shrewd. Be wise as a serpent and be as innocent as a dove. There are no perfect candidates They're all flawed, sinful people just like me and you. But be wise, be shrewd, and be innocent in your participation in government over these next couple of weeks. And know that government is not almighty. Government is not the answer to every problem. And, Romans 13, you can't help but bring it up, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. God has instituted the authorities in place. And in our country, we the people can choose those people and who they are. And we should. They're not our saviors. But they can be our servants. Which is our goal. So that's government. Next, God. How in the world are you going to have an application point of God? Apply that, God. (laughs) I mean, really? Let me try to see what I can do here. In our passage today, I lost my place. In our passage today, Jesus set Caesar against God in deciding who to give what to. So as we navigate these next couple of weeks of the political process, and then the next one in four years, and the next one in four years if the Lord tarries, and then live with the consequences of those events, know this. Please, please, please know this. God is in control. Which is so cliche that when people say it, we're like, yeah, yeah, I know. But. No. No but. God is in control. I don't care what the polls say. I don't care what the results say. God's in control. No matter what happens on November 3rd and beyond, God is sovereignly directing the affairs of men to achieve His intended ends. Four more years of Donald Trump, we'll see God's plan unfold. Some of you are going, oh my gosh, what are you saying? And so will four years of Joe Biden. God is sovereignly directing the affairs of men to achieve His intended ends. 
So with our role in and towards government clear, we can know the person and plan of God as primary in our lives and thus live that way. Please listen to me. Please listen to me. No matter who is in the White House, God is on the throne. Don't let the outcomes of political posturing shake your faith in the Almighty God. As each candidate stands up and says they're going to make your wildest dreams come true, don't be shocked when it doesn't happen, regardless of who that is. Look past them and the authority that has been granted to them to the one who has given them that authority. And it's not we the people, it's God Almighty. Look at Psalm 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The king of the earth set them the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying as for me I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. All the political posturing, all the false promises, all the impure desires of these politicians, God sees it all and what does he say? He says, ha, 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 ha. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You guys do what you want. Your little ants scurry around your anthill. And Jesus is king. That's what God says. Also this, some, uh, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So go ahead, America. Put somebody in public office. Elect them as your governor, as your king, as your president. God's going to direct his heart anyway. Now he may fight against the will of God and God's going to prevail. And you and me and all of us who are sitting in this building this morning have seen some pretty hard political times and we're going, what in the world is God doing? I don't know, but I know God is doing. And He's directing the heart of the King wherever He wills it. Let's put it on a bigger scale. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Amongst the Hitlers, among the Maos, among the Pol Pots, Jesus Christ is King and God is in the heavens doing what He pleases. And that's not hopeless, that's hopeful. I've got an idea of where I want this election to go. And if it doesn't go that way, I am prone to despair. Oh no! God, what are you going to do? This couldn't have been your plan. And God says, I'm in the heavens, I've appointed my king, and I do as I please. And the acts of men have consequences. And those consequences will be felt in that final day. Worship me. 
Which brings us to our last application point. We saw government, we saw God, and finally we see give. Today's passage, Matthew 22, verses 20 and 21. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this on this coin? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What's our role as Christians? We have to see the proper role of government. We have to see the true role of God. And we have to respond accordingly. We give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Even if it's unfair and unjust and we don't like it. Pay the tribute to Caesar so that he can dominate you. Give it to him. Give him his coin. But don't you dare... For a second, bow your knee and worship to Caesar. Don't you put your faith and hope and love in any governing official. Reserve those things for God and God alone. Yes, vote. Yes, pay your taxes, even the unfair ones. Yes, honor those in authority. Render that to them. That is the Christian thing to do. And in the midst of it all, give God what belongs to God. Give Him your worship. And don't get those things mixed up. Don't do your duty toward God and pay Him what you owe Him. And don't worship the government and its promises to make all your wildest dreams come true. Don't do it, Christian. Psalm 20, verses 7 through 9. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall. But we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Don't trust in chariots and horses. Don't trust in candidates and political parties. Participate in their nonsense because it's the right thing to do. And worship God in the midst of it. Put your hope, your trust in the Lord your God. I'll close with this. <clears throat> I mentioned Ray Vanderlaan. He talked about this interaction between Jesus and um, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. He said, Jesus asks for a coin. The fact that they had a coin shows that they'd already acquiesced in using Caesar's money. The inscription says, A worshipped son of a worshipped God, referring to Caesar. Jesus says, Render unto Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what's God's. Caesar isn't God, but it is his money because God gave him the authority. And the money, being idolatrous, is inappropriate, by the way, for temple use but perfectly suitable for payment to an idolatrous government. Don't get mixed up in this political process. Then who knows what's going to happen in the next two weeks? God does. I don't. We've already had one October surprise. We'll probably have another couple before we get to November 3rd. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And I would say this. It's true of salvation as well, right? It's true on a personal level, not just a political level. If we trust in ourselves, we'll never see salvation. 
If we vote for ourselves and we politic and do everything we can to get ourselves elected in God's sight, we lose that election every time. But if we put our hope, our faith, our trust in the finished work of Christ, His body, His blood, and we render to God what is God's. And let me tell you this, salvation belongs to God. Save me, O God. May I never try to save myself. May I never try to promote myself as a political party seeking favor with you. No, God, I got nothing, and I trust you to be exalted, to be magnified, and I believe that Jesus is better than anything that I could do anyway. Help me to render to Caesar what Caesar's. Help me to not try to exalt myself. Help me to trust in the Lord with all my heart and see him exalted in my life. That's how we will know final deliverance and ultimate salvation. Let's pray. Father, we are sinful men with our feet planted firmly in the miry clay if we're not careful. If we look to the affairs of men and the dealings of politicians to save us, if we look to ourselves to save us, May we not be those people, God, but may we look to you. May we be faithful and may we show honor and pay the taxes that are due to the authorities that are in place in our lives. And God, may we look well past them and see you high and exalted and give you the worship that only you are due. God, help us to be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents as we go to cast our votes. And God, I do pray that you would show us favor as your people in this upcoming election and that you would put people in office who will uphold biblical principles, who will enact just laws to protect the innocent, to help the downtrodden and the poor. And that we would see your hand acting in and through our government in a way that blesses and helps us and everybody around us. But God, our ultimate hope is not in the political process. Our ultimate hope is in you. And we know that you will not disappoint us. So we praise you and thank you. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for a benediction? Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great day. If you want to congregate, do so outside. I think it's 1.30.